Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Aviators Cafe podcast. Today, I have a previous flight instructor of mine and a Mountaineer Cargo uh, first officer uh, who is joining me down the line uh, on Zoom. And his name is James Pierce. And James, welcome to the Cafe Aviation Cafe podcast. Thanks, man. Glad to be here. Yeah, glad to have you on. We've been coordinating this for a little while. <laughs> yeah, I apologize for the scheduling issues. Yeah, no, yeah, no worries, man. We've been all been busy anyway. I was in the Caribbean in the last weekend, so happens, right? Yeah, must have been much very warm down there. Yeah, I mean it's not. It's, it's, it's right now. Yeah, I mean it's not that much different from Florida where I am now. So, yeah. So James, take us back to the beginning of your like when you got the aviation bug. What was like really the trigger? Free to get into aviation oh yeah so i was 16 at the time living in kentucky uh on my family farm you know going to school uh, working on the farm in the summer and i was trying to figure out what i wanted to do with my life and at first i thought well you know i work on a farm i'll just you know be a large animal vet or something like that you know work on being able to work on horses and cattle and whatnot. And I'll just continue on with the family farm business. But the more I thought about that, the more I was like, yeah, that's just, that's not what I want to do at all. And uh, both my grandfathers, my, on my mother's side and my father's side were both pilots, even though they had stopped flying by the time I was old enough to really appreciate it. But uh, you know, they had both talked about, you know, well, you should consider aviation. And so believe it or not in this small little town, of 14,000 people in Glasgow, Kentucky, there was an airport. <laughs> so I, yeah, I go there, you know, and talk to a flight instructor that's there. He's the FBO manager, the mechanic, and the flight instructor, all in one. That's how small the airport is. And, you know, I take the discovery flight. And that, uh, you know, we start the plane, we taxi out to the runway, and uh, we call it, we're gonna take off. And we, as we advance the throttle forward, that feeling of acceleration, that was when I caught the bug, that initial acceleration and then, you know, reaching V1 and then rotating and then kind of seeing the ground just drop away. At that point, I was I was immediately hooked and I was like, OK, well, this is what I got to do for the rest of my life. So so that's how I got into it. So you go from that moment to what was the process for you to get essentially enrolling in flight school? Did you just do your private out of that air, small airport or how did that go? Yeah, yeah. So I that's exactly what I did. I did my private and my instrument out of the my hometown airport in Glasgow uh, to help pay for that. You know, I worked as a lineman fueling other planes and I did a lot of lawn work there, you know, like mowing along the taxiways and the runways and around the hangars and uh, help pay for flight school that way. And then um, and then for my commercial single and multi, that's actually when I first started uh, flying with Blue Line Aviation out in Raleigh, North Carolina is uh for that i went out to them for those uh, so how did you actually find out about blue did you just see an ad about it somewhere in a magazine or something yeah no i had talked with my flight instructor and he wasn't really comfortable progressing on past uh private pilot and instrument rating mm -hmm. he didn't really want to do any commercial instruction or any multi-engine instruction so he recommended you know there are several flight schools all across the nation that do you know these crash course two-week things where you get your written test done and everything then you just go two weeks of maneuvers and everything take your check rides at the end and you're done so i just started researching online and you know 
looked up flight schools that did that. And Blue Line Aviation was one of the flight schools that popped up. And I gave them a call and I actually talked with uh, Adam Walters was the first guy I talked with there. And <laughs> he sold me on it, you know? Yeah. Funnily enough, Adam was the same person I talked to when I enrolled in flight school, funnily enough. So <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny because he can, he can have such a deadpan expression on the phone. But you're like, you know what? I, I kind of trust this guy. So I'm just, I'm going to blindly follow him, I guess. <laughs> yeah. And funnily enough, Adam was the, my DPE for my private pilot's check, right? So there's that. Oh yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, but uh, small world uh, on that front. Uh, so how did you eventually obviously do your commercial and multi at Blue Line? At what point did you say, "Oh, right, I want to"? How am I going to pay for time? Did you decide? At uh, what point did you decide to become like a CFI essentially? Right, that's the big question, right? Am, am I going to go try to find a pipeline job or do banner towing or you know be a CFI? I didn't initially want to be a CFI, a certified flight instructor, but I, knowing my strengths and limitations, I'm not the best at networking with people. And I know that a lot of those jobs that you don't have to be a flight instructor for, you need to be able to make a lot of friends and know the right people to get in and be able to do those. And I just thought, you know, I enjoy teaching. I had a little bit of a teaching background while I was in college. Uh, I got to teach a few uh, physics labs. So I, I kind of understood some of those principles and I found that I enjoyed it. And, uh, you know, I, I had a desire to kind of pass along the knowledge that I had with aviation anyway. So I thought, you know, I know that I can pretty much anywhere get a job as a CFI and I can commit to being the best CFI I can while I'm doing it. You know, I'm not just going to do it to build hours and, you know, just punch a time card in and out. Because I know that's that wouldn't be fair to any of the students that I was teaching, right? You know, and that wouldn't be fair to me because if those students, you know, one day become pilots and, you know, they're flying uh, cargo or people around and, and they're unsafe because of some of the things that I taught them, then that's actually unfair to everyone. So I thought, you know, I will, I'll go ahead and be a CFI, but while I'm there, I'll make sure that I'm the best CFI I can and I make the safest and most proficient pilots that I can. Yeah, so that's definitely a good point. Uh, and some of those things that you did teach me still resonate with me. So, so there. Yeah. So, that that's Get the blue up and the brown down. Yeah, yeah. So obviously, you know, you build your time. Uh, you know, flight instructing. Um, at what point did you say, okay, I have had enough of flight instructing, flight instructing, and I need to find something new. Well, my goal was always to not flight instruct for a very yeah. long time, uh, you know, whether it be, you know, finding something else quickly or waiting until I had my full 1500 hours uh, to get my ATP license and then go fly for an airline. Uh, I had never really planned on flight instructing for more than two years anyway. And so it was at Blue Line Aviation where I was a CFI. Uh, Mountain Air Cargo, the company that I work for now, they had actually been invited to come give a talk at Blue Line Aviation. And so I met with uh, Pete Tutek, who's the chief pilot, and Hillary Patterson, who's the head of recruiting at MAC. And uh, what they were selling is exactly what I was looking for. I've always been interested in doing cargo aviation as the long-term goal. And so they said, well, you know, if you fly on the Part 135 side, flying our single pilot caravans, you can start with as little as 1,200 hours, which... I was at like 1100 when they came to visit. So, you know, I immediately shut my hands yeah. and said, Hey, do you have an opening for me? And they said, yeah, sure. Send us your resume. And the rest is history. Yeah. 
So, you know, you, you uh, kind of move on from the line of discipline instructing. Um, mm -hmm. And you get you start the training for uh, mountain air cargo flying 135 freight. Uh, mm -hmm. How was that training for you? Uh, was that like more challenging than what you have done previously? Or was it just a different way of thinking about things? That's a great question. And it's another good reason why being a CFI can be a really good thing in the long term is that you have to be very proficient in your stick and rudder skills and your knowledge and being able to communicate that knowledge to be a good CFI. So then translating all of those skills into learning how to fly a plane and knowing the regulations for part 135 operations, it was actually a very seamless and relatively simple transition. You know, it was just learning a few new regulations with how to deal with like hazardous material that's on your plane, um, you know, operational control considerations with the uh, mountain air cargo. And then, you know, flying a caravan, it, it's just a big 182. You know, it's not retractable gear and it's just a, a turbine engine. It's a Pratt & Whitney, Pratt Whitney uh, PT6A. So, you know, that was a little different just because I, I had never flown a turbine engine before. But besides that, uh, it, it was a pretty easy transition. So... You know, you, you obviously you had that training that you just described um, going through that. And obviously you start flying the 135, the caravan around in 135 freight. Um, mm -hmm. it, how were how you kind of like assigned like their different routes? Were you just, you know, flying out of a single base or were you just, you know, flying all over the place? It's a great question, Samer. It's like you're a podcast host or something. I know, right? So <laughs> yeah, we should <laughs> we should probably back up first and talk about like what Mountain Air Cargo specializes yeah. in is that we are a feeder airline for FedEx that we, we only contract specifically with FedEx and we fly smaller routes uh, specifically, you know, to go into smaller airports or go between airports that have shorter distances. Uh, so that way, you know, FedEx isn't wasting a bunch of money flying a 7.6 or a 7.5 or something in those runs. And so on the 135 side of this operation with the even smaller plane, the caravan, it's really, really small airports, you know, like, um, well, just, yeah, just small airports. So what I did specifically is I would, what we call float around to different routes for each week, they would assign me a different run, but it's just that run for the week. So uh, there were a lot of runs I did between uh, Baltimore and New York, New Jersey, doing that back and forth. Or uh, let's see, there was a, uh, I did a Fort Lauderdale, Florida, up to Tallahassee, Florida, back and forth that way. There were a couple of times they sent me down to uh, San Juan, Puerto Rico, and uh, servicing some of the islands down there. You still there, Sam? Yeah, I'm still here. <laughs> and my phone just, my phone's running out of battery, I apologize. Yeah, no worries. This is all part of live podcast hosting. There we go. Is that yeah, there we go. If I go like this, can I flip Yeah, it yeah, yeah. Okay. You were just good. It, it automatically rotates the... I was? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Didn't rotate on my side, but as long as it rotated on your side, yeah. then that's all that matters. I think it'll just kind of auto-adjust at a certain point. Really? Yeah. I don't know. What if I do sideways? There we go. There. There we go. I apologize for interrupting the stream. Yeah, yeah, no worries. It's all part of life. <laughs> Things happen. Life happens. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, I was a floater pilot when I was in the caravan, and I would just go to different runs each week all across kind of the eastern side of the United States and some down in Puerto Rico as well. Yeah, so 
that, that that's kind of like the feeding uh, you were doing and yeah. uh, obviously getting a different roster every week uh, but there are from what I understand also from uh, previous times you've talked that there's also people that fly just fixed runs all the time yeah well like what I'm doing now which we'll get into that later but even on the 135 side, yeah, there are people who they decided to just live in Baltimore, live down in Puerto Rico, or uh, live in Newark or wherever. And so they just do that same run every week. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so. Definitely for the people that want to, you know, not do the same run like, you know, forever, you know, floating around. Yeah. Uh, does have its advantages as well. The downside, obviously, you have to commute everywhere. Right, right. You have to commute. You're not home a lot. So, um, yeah, I was gone from home about 80% of the time. For some people, you know, they're completely fine with that. And that works well for them and their family. But that didn't work the best for me. I started getting kind of lonely. But uh, now I'm based. So I'm home every day. But even as a base pilot, Mountaineer Cargo is really good at if you want to go float for a little bit, you know, just to keep your skills sharp and different airport environments and whatnot then they'll let you do that for a week or two if you want okay so it's good also good to know for other listeners that are out there that you know that option does exist to go kind of everywhere yeah yeah so it doesn't matter if i the chief pilot he kind of encourages that um because he understands that you know if you're just doing the same run day in and day out your skills are gonna kind of atrophy and you're gonna kind of grow in complacency yeah so he encourages us to every now and then once a month or once every other month go float somewhere just to keep our skills sharp. Yeah, that is definitely important. Like I noticed that in myself that, you know, if I'm doing a bunch of approaches in the Daytona Beach area, my skills are less sharp if I go to, I don't know, let's say Raleigh, you know. Right. So that's right. The, Yeah, doing the same approach, you know, you're like, you're barely even looking at the approach yeah. while you brief it. Yeah. And then the next thing you know, like if they change something on it and you don't catch yeah. it, then you you kind of end up in a sticky situation. Yeah, the, I I've had little sticky situations, but luckily I was just like, all right, oops. Let, 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 let. That's right. Oops. <laughs> File a NASA report. Yeah, yeah. Just uh, hey, can I get a quick hold somewhere here? Uh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> luckily, it was just you know a little minor issues that I was like, all right, like I caught him early. And I just did a misapproach and you know called it a day at that, but you know. When in doubt, go around. Exactly. You know, when in doubt, go around. You might burn an extra couple of gallons of half gas, but yeah, it's better than being dead. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah that's, that's for sure. <laughs> or having a conversation with the FBA, that that is not funny either. But, but um, obviously, you do, uh, you know, float. Um, now you're obviously based in Indianapolis. Plan the ADRs. Yeah. Uh, how is that kind of process? Did they just call you up one day and say, "Hey, we need you for the ADRs"? Well, you know, like I said earlier on, my long-term goal has always been to fly cargo. You know, for one of the legacy airlines, you know, FedEx or UPS or something. So, Mountaineer Cargo was really attractive to me because they have good flow-through program into FedEx. And so when I, you know, raised my hand and said, hey, I want to work for you guys during the interview process, I made it clear that I didn't want to stay on the 135 side and in the caravan. I wanted to, as I gained skill and hours, I wanted to progress over into the part 121 side, which is what the, what the ATRs are on. That's a legitimate, like actual airline. 
at that point. So, yeah, so I flew the caravans for a little over a year. And I had reached 1500 hours pretty quick, but you know, they had to, they had to wait until the, the, there was class availability and there were other people to transition into ATRs with me. And so then uh, back in March of this year, I went for my ATP CTP, um, got that taken care of and then started the training for the ATR, which was a nice long process. It's two weeks of in-doc which is basically where you're learning all about how the airline operates and all the regulations that you have to know. And the big one, I think I mentioned it before, but like operational control, like that's a really big deal for part 121 operations. Like if we're flying along and uh, our destination is completely socked in and we start looking at our alternate and our alternate is also socked in, we can't just choose to go to another alternate. We actually have to, call up our company using Eric radio and have them file a new alternate for us. And then we can go to that new alternate because technically the company still has operational control of our flight, even in the air. So it, it's all, all kinds of crazy stuff like that in the regulations. And then after that, of course, was learning how to fly the ATR and learning about the ATR systems, which is a very complex airplane from like the 1980s. You know, the, it was like a coalition between a French and an Italian uh, aviation company to build this plane. And for some reason, they thought that like relays were like the best thing on the world. So everything, all of the electronic systems run through relays, um, which makes it really complicated. You know, if you lose one small thing here, it may affect several different subsystems that don't really seem related, but they are. So it was, uh, it was two weeks of ground and then the uh, part 121 oral exam and then two weeks of simulator school from the part 121 check ride, which also took care of the type rating for the ATR 42 and 72 and the Mountaineer cargo airline check ride as well. So then once I got all that taken care of, then I moved on to operational experience time, which is where you have to fly with a check airman on the line for 20 hours. And then they can sign you off and say, okay, you're good to go. You can fly with any of the captains. There are a few other things about uh, low time captains, but uh, pretty much all the captains in Mountain are high time, so that didn't matter. And then I would just uh, start flying here in Indy. So, um, yeah. Yeah, that's definitely uh, also something that uh, about proficiency as well. It's just, uh, you know, if you can knock out a 121 check ride, you know, you can and have everything on top of it as well, like a type ride and mountain air cargo specificity and stuff. Uh, that definitely does yeah. take care of a lot of things in one go. You don't have to, you know, spend months just trying to do this or that and this and that. Exactly. And that, that was something that I was confused about at first, because at first I was looking at, you know, the ATP Airman Certification Standards, you know, like how you would do for like your IFR mm -hmm. check, right? You'd go through and read the book to figure out what you need to know. And uh, all the teachers like, you don't need to do that. Uh, you just need to know what we tell you because the FAA certifies the check ride that you're getting specifically for mountain air cargo. So like if I go to any other airline, even though I have my ATP license, you know, I'd have to take their yeah. check ride. Right. Uh, because it's, you know, to be certified under their airline. So uh, that's how they're able to get it all kind of taken care of in one go is that, uh, you know, they just have this whole list of criteria and then the FAA says, yes, that is okay. They give their stamp of approval and then it takes care of all three of those things the atp the type rating and the airline check right all in one 
Well, that's also a good caveat there that, you know, if you go to a different airline, you got to do a airline specific check ride for, you know, what, even if you have a type rating in, let's say an ATR 42 and 72. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because well, every, every airline is going to have slightly different operation specifications, right? You know, it's like, oh, well, you for climbing or descending, you know, we say, you know, a thousand feet to go or, well, we don't say it like that. And then, you know, we say 100 feet to go. Um, and then every airline has a different little way that they want you to do that. And so you have to demonstrate proficiency with all of those operation specifications. Yeah, definitely. And also to say, do it in the way that the airline wants you to do it, not say, oh, yeah, I got like 5,000 mm -hmm. hours in ATR and don't tell that to the check airman. And, you know, the check airman is like, well, guess what? You're not on airline X, you're on airline Y, and I can just screw you over in every which way, you know? <laughs> That's right. That's right. You don't have 5,000 hours at our airline. So shut yeah, up and sit essentially. Down. But, you know, just, yeah. you know, you tell the trainer that, but you don't tell the check airman that. Yeah, no, no, no. You, know, you just keep your head down and do what they tell you to do. Say yes, sir, no, sir, yes, ma'am, yeah. no, ma'am. And be a good yeah. pilot. I mean, at the end of the day, we are the, at the no pointy end of the things. When it, so, mm -hmm. you know, we kind of have to do as we're told. That's right. So. Uh, obviously, you know, you're going through, uh, you went through everything and, you know, essentially, do you still enjoy it? <laughs> that That's the most important part, because obviously you mentioned that you still want to do freight, uh, flowing into FedEx and all that stuff. So. I do. I, I still enjoy it a lot. Like I had said earlier on when we were talking about when it was floating. I was starting to enjoy it a lot less just because I was home away from my wife and my dog Stanley a lot. And that, that was a big deal to me, you know, for my family at quality time is really important. Um, but now that I'm based here in Indy and I'm home every day, it's, uh, it's awesome. I get to wake up, you know, waking up at one 30 in the morning is kind of not, not ideal, but you know, you just go to bed a little earlier. It's no big deal. Um, but yeah, you know, being able to go to the airport, uh, being able to fly. Also, you know, having a crew to fly with. And I'm not the captain yet. I'm just the first officer. But uh, um, having someone there to talk to, someone who you like, you know, when it's your leg and you're making the decisions, they can be there. and They can kind of coach you through the decisions that you're making so that way you can gain valuable experience. So all of that's really awesome. And then, yeah, flying a plane is absolutely amazing. The ATR is one of the coolest planes, if not the coolest plane I've ever flown. It's super complex, but it's just like it, it wants to fly. You know, it's the kind of plane that wants to fly. So it's a lot of fun. I still so enjoy that's it. That's good, good also. And, you know, obviously people have to understand that, you know, when they're deciding to either be uh, someone that floats around from place to place doing different routes or being based, you know, weigh the options, you know, mm -hmm. not oh, maybe, you know, you enjoy being based somewhere but someone else might enjoy you know flying a bunch of different things all the time being and being away from home doesn't really matter for them exactly yeah and it's just all it's all about what works for you and your family if, if you've got a family or, or, or what you want you know so and for me what i'm doing now works very well yeah and obviously uh you know you're saying you're uh, working towards flowing in uh to fedex and how how do how do you see the flow to FedEx from, you know, essentially your vantage point? 
Yeah, so Mountaineer Cargo has a really cool program called the Purple Runway Program, where um, if you agree to work for Mountaineer Cargo for three years, then they will start uh, all of the training with FedEx early. You know, you're, you're basically saying, I'm agreeing to work for this feeder for three years with the intent of moving up to FedEx. So FedEx starts cultivating you. They, you know, start doing like your... Uh, like your neo tests and your cog screening and they actually start jet transition training uh, as well and then you know all you have to do instead of the usual prerequisite 1000 hours of pilot and command multi-turbine time that fedex requires you only have to do 500 hours of pilot and command multi-turbine time and then once you do that the 500 hours the three years and you complete all of the training over that three years then all you have to do is pass the final interview and then you've got a job at FedEx. Yeah, so that's uh, definitely a good uh, uh, something for people to understand as well that, you know, if they want to, you know, uh, be able to flow into FedEx or, you know, any other kind of place to look for programs that are similar to what uh, Mountaineer Cargo has with the Purple Runway. Yeah, I mean, even if you choose not to do the Purple Runway program, um, Working at a feeder airline is a really good idea if you want to move up to FedEx because you can, you know, start networking. Even though I said I'm not good at it, I still am doing it. You know, you, you make friends with people and you can shake the right hands of the people you need to know for when that time comes and you interview with FedEx or UPS or whoever. yeah, definitely. And also just to say as well, like you know, I flew your boxes around for a while, so. You know, yeah. I mean, yeah. Hey, hey come on. Yeah. yeah. So that you can kind of have say like, yeah, I flew your boxes around for five years, you know. Yeah, I, I think I'm going to pilot at that respect, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I would necessarily lead exactly like Yeah, but that. you know, the, the, that, that's the general you gist definitely... of it. Yeah, you have a really good understanding of how that logistics cargo operation works, you know. I don't know if UPS is any different because all I've flown for is Mountain Ricardo and via them FedEx. So all I can, but you know, that would be perfect for going in and talking about FedEx and, you know, I fully understand how your system operates. Yeah. But also something to keep in mind for other people to, you know, essentially find something similar as well. Yeah. yeah. So is there like something as well that you feel like other people that are trying to get into freight? Uh, should know before he's like yeah freight sounds cool yeah so obviously like we talked about before it's a lot of nighttime flying so if you have a hard time shifting your circadian rhythm then that's something to really consider or if shifting your circadian rhythm you know causes any mental issues you know that's yeah. also something to consider as well you know, so for some people, it can increase anxiety a little bit and stuff like that. Uh, that would be the biggest thing is the nighttime flying. And then, um, you know, flying for a feeder like Mountaineer Cargo, there's you don't build time very quickly. So I'm building about 16 hours of flight yeah. time a week. I could build it a little faster if I went down to Memphis and did some of the runs down there. But like I said, I like being home. So um so in that regard, you know, you're not building time very quickly. So it may take me a while to reach the prerequisite time I need to get up to FedEx. Um, and then uh, uh, with bo flying boxes, it's a lot of hurry up and wait. 
you know, especially with what we've seen with the pandemic and people, you know, not willing to work or people unable to work, we've been having to deal with a lot of delays at FedEx because they just simply don't have the staff needed to sort the boxes and then bring them out to the plane and then load them into the plane. So, you know, there's, so you just kind of you're supposed to leave at, you know, like four in the morning and, you know, you get out to the plane on time and get everything done. And then, you know, next thing you know, it's five 30 and they're just starting to load your plane with cargo. And so it's just something that you got to be willing to hurry up, get to where you're supposed to get to when you're supposed to be there do all your stuff and then just sit there and kind of twitter your thumbs yeah. for a bit. You know? Yeah, that's definitely something I've heard a lot in the with freight. It's just hurry up and wait and, you know, and uh, the yeah. waiting part is probably like the most tiring part of it because it's out of your control. Yep, I recommend making sure you have a unlimited data phone plan so you can, you know, play games, scroll Instagram, watch Netflix. Yeah, but actually, you're uh, not on your phone at all and making sure you watch the plane. Yeah. Making sure no nefarious. Yeah, yeah, officially speaking, obviously. That's right, yeah. <laughs> but what actually happens is something completely different. Yeah, you know, yeah. it is what it is. As long as, yeah, as long as you're making sure you maintain the highest level of safety, that, you know, that, that's what's really the most yeah, important. Yeah, that, that safety is number one priority. Yeah. But, you know, all of those negative sides, the best part is, you know, you're flying boxes and not people. You know, you don't yeah. have to worry about people not willing to wear their masks or you having to duct tape yeah. them to their seat or yeah. anything like that. You know, <laughs> you know, a box isn't going isn't gonna to be mean yeah. to you. Unless it's likely. a stowaway. Unless it's a stowaway, in which case, that's a whole other issue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, 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 that's something. We can just put our oxygen yeah. masks on it. Yeah, well, you know, we're at flight level two zero zero. We'll put our oxygen masks on and depressurize yeah. the plane. Just take them out. Yeah, it'll be okay. Yeah, you know, it's, well, not <laughs> you know, just enough to where he passes yeah. out, and you know, we'll make sure he has yeah. enough oxygen. Yeah, just pass him a scuba hack, you know. <laughs> but uh, yeah, have you had any interesting things that have happened during your time flying freight, or has it just been pretty much more or less routine? Uh, well, you know, as soon as you start thinking aviation yeah. is routine, is when yeah. interesting stuff happens. Yeah, uh, a couple weeks ago, I was flying between uh, Indianapolis and Sioux Falls, which I think yeah. is in South Dakota. My, my geography is bad. And uh, all of a sudden, like, almost every warning on the plane went off at the same time. And uh, it wasn't anything bad. It was just one of our uh, DC generators failed. But, you know, the way it failed, and we were like, what in the world is going on right now? And then, you know, we started smelling smoke. So, you know, we had to put the oxygen masks on and everything. Uh, it wasn't smoke, thank goodness. Or if it was, you know, the circuit breakers popped and prevented any more fire from happening. So uh, we were able to land without any event, and they were able to fly a mechanic out with a new generator the next day. But, yeah, that was a little, little intense for a second there. Um, and then when I was flying the caravan, you know, there were a couple of times dealing with weather that was fun, you know, accidentally flying into uh, super cool liquid drops, you know, large liquid drops, oh, that's you know, because, yeah, I mean, the best you can, like, you can see if they're forecasted, but, you know, sometimes yeah. forecasts are wrong. So, you know, we're, we're allowed to fly, you know, the caravan has uh, the TKS weeping wing system, so you can fly in no icing and 
I think for us, as long as it was like forecast to be at or less than uh, moderate icing, then we were okay. And for the trip, it was only light icing. But then all of a sudden, you know, really started to build up fast on the plane. I was like, oh no. And in the caravan, you're there by yourself. So, you know, you're like looking around for see a show of hands who has ideas. And then you realize, yeah. oh, it's just me. And so then you have to think of an idea really quickly. Yeah. It's, all it's like, hey, why all of a sudden is there like a thick layer of water drop sticking through my windshield kind of thing? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I was like, why is this not coming off right now? But uh, yeah, no, you just uh, do max flow air, airframe with the TKS system and that takes care of it most of the time. Yeah, I've had that happen once uh, yeah. down here. It's like, wait a minute. Yeah. Oh, yeah? Yeah, I was Did flying uh, up from Vero Beach to Daytona. It's about an hour and 1.2 mm -hmm. hops time or something. And uh, we were in and out of the clouds because there were like uh, thunderstorms in the area we were avoiding. And all of a sudden it started raining. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, the I had the landing lights on. And all of a sudden, I just saw, saw the mm -hmm. strap start to stick to the windshield. Like, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> Hold up. Oh, man. Uh, yeah, I just descended it out of it. Because I was at like 11,000 feet. So I was like, dude, let's no, descend 2,000 yeah. feet and see what happens. And, I, and that took care of it. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you're down there yeah. in Florida. You know what I mean? You can get down into like 60 yeah. degree weather pretty yeah. good. Yeah, I mean, it was like, I went from like minus four to like plus 10 in like no time. So, yeah, see, no big deal. What, uh, yeah, what kind of labor is like? Yeah. Yeah, I just had like a pedo heat, you know, like that's about it. Yeah. Hey, I mean, yeah. it's better than nothing. Yeah, yeah, I mean, just enjoying living a life essentially. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Well, glad you were able yeah. to resolve that situation. Yeah. Luckily, that was just like, like, oh, let's just send and see what happens. But, uh, yeah, so, uh, obviously, with all that, but uh, I like to call this section the rapid fire section. So it's kind of like a kind of like a random Ooh. question that come to my mind. So that, you know, like, like usually like the first thing that comes to your mind is usually what's it. So. Uh, well, I mean, the first thing that comes to my mind is yeah. what you're No, but like, uh, uh, this is kind of like aviation related stuff. So, uh, well, okay. Well, you didn't you didn't define that in the rules. Yeah, anyway. but uh, so uh, the the first question I usually like to ask is, let's say you're commuting from one place uh, back home, uh, and you need to get a quick bite to eat. What's usually your go to place? Mm -hmm. Uh, I am so angry with how expensive airport food is that I would rather go hungry. <laughs> that's a good question, too. <laughs> yeah, that's, I mean, like, if I'm already in the airport and I'm hungry and it's in between going hungry or spending $20 on a burger, yeah. I'm, I'm just going to go hungry. Right? Yeah, I had a previous guest who was like, yeah, just have a can of tuna and a loaf of bread in your flight bag. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, I don't, I don't know if I can handle Cantuna. Yeah, That's but, too oh much. well, some things you gotta live with. But uh, yeah. what's your favorite approach to do that you have done at least? Oh, so like favorite type of approach or favorite approach to uh, a specific airport? Both. Ooh, okay. So my favorite type of approaches are the old school ones, like a VOR DME, like where you have to start. You know, at a specific fix, and then do a DME arc to your initial approach fix, and or you know your intermediate fix, and then you know go yeah. in that way. I think those are always really cool and really fun. 
Um, and then at a specific airport in, uh, there is a visual approach in, up in New York. I can't remember the airport. It was, I was doing an ad hoc flight from Newark, uh, New Jersey, up to some airports in the state of New York. And it's a class Delta airport that's right next to like a military airport as well that you can't descend into their airspace uh, while it's active. And so you have to stay up really high until you're on a very, very short final to the airport. And in the caravan, it doesn't have any speed brakes, but it has this gigantic propeller that if you just pull the power back, all of a sudden you're going like negative two miles an hour. So you would be able to just like scream in at 160 until you're on a really short final, then chop the power, and then you just drop down really quickly. Of course, maintaining no greater than a thousand foot per minute descent as per obstacles. Like the, you know, I'd say that's probably my favorite approach. And what would be like uh, your most like scenic approach? Kind of like uh, you're flying at a VFR approach into an airport. Ooh, most scenic approach. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, a lot of the times it's at night, so there's not a whole lot yeah. of scenery necessary yeah. to see. I would say the most scenic I've ever seen would just, uh, you know, flying into Newark at night because you get to see a little bit of New York City and that yeah. skyline. So yeah. that's pretty cool. And what would be your favorite airplane you've flown in your flying career until now? ATR-72. I was going to have, uh, going to say like probably the diamonds that you've flown, but, you know. Yeah, those diamond planes, those are nice, but, you know, there's something about when you fly a, a plane that has four seats and you can't really fit four, well, you can't fit four yeah, 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 size yeah. people in there anyway. <laughs> you can fit four small, tiny people. Um, so uh, they were, they were really cool to fly and I really enjoyed flying them, but uh, flying the ATR is just, is really fun. You know, it's all, it's not mm -hmm. any fly by wire or uh, hydraulics. It's all, uh, it's all cables to the mm -hmm. ailerons and the elevator and the rudder. So it's all still analog. Now the the trim, at least the oh no, there are spoilers on the wings that are hydraulic, but the trim and the actual uh, controls themselves are all cables. So it's really fun. It's very responsive. Uh, yeah. All right. Uh, what be? Uh, what's the favorite plane you've flown on as, on as a passenger? As a passenger. I was very young. I barely remember it, but I got to fly as a passenger on a triple seven once going between London Heathrow back to the United States. And I remember that being really cool. I remember going in and looking down, you know, towards the coach where I was going to sit and then looking the other way and seeing that like the business class seats were facing the other direction. And that just like blew my mind. I was like, what? Why are their seats facing the wrong way? And why are they so big compared to the seat that I have to sit in? <laughs> yeah. But uh, that was a really cool plane to to uh, yeah. ride in. But now I get to see those, you know, up close and personal every day. Mm -hmm. You know, on the ramp there at the FedEx ramp, you know, we have triple sevens, you know, uh, 767s or 57s. We have a few uh, A300s that come in. I think we have an A340 mm -hmm. that comes in every now and then too. Yeah. And yeah, I didn't know uh, FedEx had the A340s. Or was it, did I hear that wrong? Or, uh, or did I hear the three tens? And I yeah. just took it. Yeah. Maybe that's what it is. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. It's one of the big. Yeah. That yeah. 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 Because, because, to my knowledge, at least, 
and uh, someone can kind of drop me a line that there's no freighter version of a 340. So, well, yeah, there you go. yeah, I'm but it's probably a 310 or something. Yeah. yeah, it's a big plane. That's all I know. I'm like, wow, that's yeah. pretty big. I want to fly that one day. Well, no, I wouldn't want to fly that. I'd rather be on a 767. Yeah. Speaking of favorite planes, would the 767 be your favorite plane to fly in your future? In your future? In my future, yeah, absolutely. Because you know the 67 and 57 are the same type rating, so you know you can just swap in and out of yeah. those whenever you want. You know, yeah. Oh, I don't know. I think it would be really, really cool to be able to actually fly the triple seven as well, do some of the international stuff. Yeah, I think that would be a lot. Yeah, of fun. That, that that does seem quite fun, just going to you know different places. Uh, yeah. Uh, what would be like a airport you have always wanted to fly into? An airport that I have always wanted to fly into is not one that's serviced by. FedEx. It's the island airport off of the west coast in California. Catalina Island or something? Called. Exactly. The Catalina Island Airport. I really yeah. want to fly there. But that would just be a fun little hundred dollar yeah. burger trip. Oh, it'll be one day it would be within your network that within the FedEx network that you, that you would want to fly into. Yeah. Alaska. Yeah, that seems like yeah. a fun place. Yeah, man, you know, go up there like when in the dead of winter, you know, you barely see the runway. It's a big whiteout, you know, you do a cat one approach with auto. Yeah, man. definitely. It'd be fun. Well, James, yeah, well, thanks for coming on. Yeah. Really appreciate you taking the time to come on and talking about aviation. And if you ever want to come back, you have a, yeah, and if you ever want to come on for a part two for an update on where you are, feel always free to message me. Oh, yeah, sure. Well, I'm going to start charging five bucks an hour. <laughs> we'll make sure to, to, to keep it short then in that case. <laughs> yeah, there you go. I can charge by the half hour if you want. Yeah, I appreciate you letting me come on and just uh, babble away yeah. about planes for and, a little bit. Soon. Yeah, thanks for taking the time. Yeah, talk Absolutely. to you later, man. We'll talk to you later, man.